0: Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapter 11 of Eclipse titled Legends. So where we left off, there was some moving of motorbikes in car boots and she's gone to La Push for a barbecue with the Quilute tribe. We start with her already at the barbecue. We're spared narrating the travel from the pickup point to the reservation, and we just start. Thank the Lord, more of that please, Stephanie. And they're all eating hot dogs, and it sounds like there's a bit of tension between Paul and Jacob over who gets to eat the last hot dog, and haven't we all been there? And she says Jacob's sighing and patting his stomach, and she says it was somehow still flat, though I'd lost count of how many hot dogs he'd eaten after his 10th. This son of a bitch. I ate one vegetarian hot dog on normal white bread and I'm bloated. If I even have dairy in my coffee these days, I'm getting bloated. And here's Jacob just tapping on his flat stomach, not experiencing any bloating. I am so jealous. I never wanted to be a supernatural being, but now I'm sort of thinking, kinda wish I was a werewolf so I could eat whatever I wanted and still have a flat stomach. And maybe that's why Bella wants to be a vampire so bad because she's sick of bodily functions. Maybe she's sick of holding in a fart when she's with Edward. And so she's just thinking, if I become a vampire, then I won't need to fart. And I'll live happily ever after with minimal bloating. Oh, what a dream. So Jacob's teasing Paul. He's like, nah, I'm gonna have the hot dog. And then Paul like gets super angry. He balls up his fists and he's like, and Jacob's like, oh, calm down here, have the hot dog. And then Paul's like, oh, okay, thanks. And she says he's already over his brief fit of temper. So they can control their temper. This whole rhetoric that the werewolves can't control their temper, I'm, I'm not buying into it. And it's at this point that Bella explicitly tells us that she's at the barbecue. Like, I think we'd figured it out. But she says, while Jacob and I had dropped off my bike at the garage, and he had admitted ruefully that the helmet was a good idea that he should have thought of himself, I'd started to worry about showing up at the bonfire, wondering if the werewolves would consider me a traitor now, would they be angry with me, blah, blah, blah. I think it's hilarious that Jacob never thought of a helmet. He's like, whoa, a helmet? What a, what a brilliant idea. How did Edward ever come up with that? Like, aren't helmets commonplace? I don't know if you need to be a Mensa candidate with a really big IQ to think of a helmet when you're riding a motorbike, but maybe you do. Maybe you do, because he did not think of it. Didn't even cross his mind. And this was before he was a werewolf. He was just a regular kid and he didn't even think of a helmet to protect the old noggin. Maybe there's a sign there that there's some emotional maturity that's lacking with Jacob. So Bella thinks everyone's going to hate her, but guess what? They don't. At least not outwardly. They might hate her on the inside, but they're all being very nice. Emery's like, hey, vampire girl. And Quill's giving her both a high five and a kiss on the cheek. He's doubling up with the contact. Whereas I think like if you're high fiving someone, you don't need to follow up with the kiss on the cheek. Like it's one or the other, but he's doing both. And then Emily's even squeezing her hand when they sit down next to her. And she says it wasn't just the kids in attendance. Billy was there, Quill's ancient white-haired grandfather, creatively named Old Quill, he was there too. And I kind of disagree with that. I think if you've got two characters named Quill, you call them Quill and Quill Jr. or Young Quill or Little Quill. If I was the older Quill, I don't know if I'd be happy being called Old Quill. And then she says Sue Clearwater is there and he's the widow of Charlie's friend, Harry, and the mother of Leah and Seth. So I'm glad we've defined her via her husband and her children. She doesn't seem to have much of an identity on her own just yet. And she's kind of shocked that Leah and Seth are there. She's like, oh, I guess everyone knows the secret now. Remember they kept the secret of the wolves from Quill for like a whole year, just waiting for him to turn into a werewolf. And apparently now they're like, ah, live and learn. Just telling the whole town, although a part of me thinks that they already have turned into werewolves and Bella just doesn't know that yet. But then she does tell us that Sue has taken Harry's place on the council, and she thinks, did that make her children automatic members of La Push's most secret society? I-, I don't know if it is the most secret society. I mean you're a boring white girl human who's managed to figure everything out and you're invited, so it can't be that much of a secret society, right? And of course, the first thing Bella's thinking is how is Leah handling being in the same space as Sam and Emily? She says her lovely face betrayed no emotion, but she never looked away from the flames. And then, oh God. And then Bella, she says, looking at the perfection of Leah's features, I couldn't help but compare them to Emily's ruined face. Oh my God. Emily's ruined face. Can we not call it ruined? I think that's a step too far. I mean, you can say scarred face. It's not nice, but it's factually correct. But to say ruined, like, there's a bit of judgment in that. But Bella's thinking maybe she'll feel better knowing how Emily got so scarred. Maybe she'll think that that's like justice or something. I don't know. It'd be pretty mean spirited to be glad that your cousin is physically dismembered, but whatever. And then she's looking at Seth, who's still little, but now he's looking like a long gangly version of your younger Jacob. And she thinks, was Seth doomed to have his life changed as drastically as the rest of the boys? She says, was that future why he and his family were allowed to be here? Like, Bella, stop gatekeeping the Quileute tribe, please. They're allowed to have whatever society meeting they want. She's like, oh, why are they here? It's like, why are you here? Why are you scanning up and down the guest list like it matters what you think? And then she says, the whole pack was there. Sam with his Emily. Like, oh, oh, it's his Emily. It's his Emily. She's not a person of her own. I don't know, the sexism in this chapter, it's jumping out at me. And then there's also Kim, who's the girl that Jared imprinted on. The way she describes this poor bitch, she says, my first impression of Kim was that she was a nice girl, a little shy, and a little plain. It's like, okay, coming from you, Bella, that doesn't say much. She had a wide face, mostly cheekbones, with eyes too small to balance them out, her nose and mouth were both too broad for traditional beauty. Her flat black hair was thin and wispy in the wind. Like, are you a judge on Drag Race? Why are you tearing this poor girl down? Every feature was getting critiqued. Like, just just call a plane, just call a plane. Okay, mention her cheekbones and her eyes. Do you have to bring a nose and a mouth into it? And then you've got to bring up her thin and wispy flat hair? Like, I think we get the point. She's just assassinating this poor girl. But then she does say that was her first impression. But after a few hours of watching Jared watch Kim, she could no longer find anything plain about the girl. She says the way he stared at her, it was like a blind man seeing the sun for the first time. Now, I'm thinking that a blind person being able to see the sun for the first time would probably not have a fun time of it because they'd be squinting, it would hurt their eyes. Like I know if I turn the light on in the middle of the night when I got to get up to pee, it hurts. It hurts my eyes. So I can't imagine being blind and then staring directly into the sun. I can't imagine that would be a fun experience. But she says, oh, he looks at her like he's looking at the sun, which you should not do as a rule. But I digress. Now that she sees that a man finds her attractive, she seems to have value. Because now she says, his wondering eyes made me see new things about her how her skin looked like russet colored silk. Okay, take a drink, russet skin. She can see how the shape of her lips was a perfect double curve, how white her teeth were, how long her eyelashes were. So now that he finds her attractive, she can find her attractive. That's pretty messed up, right? Am I I being too critical of Bella or or am I reading into it too much? But I feel like that's kind of backwards. She says, watching them, I felt like I better understood what Jacob had told me about imprinting. It's hard to resist that level of commitment and adoration. Yeah, but we're still ignoring the fact that one of them imprinted on a kid. Like, uh, I don't know if that makes it any better. So Bella's thinking that it's getting pretty late, but Jacob's like, oh no, the best part's coming. We didn't meet just to eat through a week's worth of food. This is technically a council meeting. It's Quill's first time and he hasn't heard the stories yet. Well, he's heard them, but this will be the first time that he knows that they're true. And Kim and Seth and Leia are all first timers too. So she's like, stories? I love a story. And Jacob says, yeah, the histories we always thought were legends, the stories of how we came to be. The first is the story of the spirit warriors. And as he says that, everyone's sort of like getting ready to hear the story. And Emily, she pulls out a notebook and a pen. And she's like going to start taking notes all throughout the story. And Jacob just said that it was only Kim, Seth, Leah, and Quill's first time and Bella's first time hearing the stories. Emily's heard it before. I don't know why she needs to take notes. I guess it's not a bad idea to put an oral history into writing, I guess. Maybe she's acting as the historian. It's a bit unclear. But Bella's looking at her and being like, oh, it's not a lecture at school, you big silly Billy. So then everyone gets quiet. There's just the crackling of the fire and Billy clears his throat and starts to tell the story. And she describes Billy as having this like deep, authoritative voice. She says, never before had I recognized the ring of majesty that was in Billy Black's voice. Though I realize now that his authority had always been there. Not to you. You were consistently disrespecting him by waltzing into his house unannounced, trying to find Jacob. Just walking in, letting yourself in, throwing doors open, waking people up in the middle of the morning, ringing his house, making him take messages getting him to drop over fish fry or whatever the fuck fish fry is. She's treated Billy like a piece of shit, right? And now she's like, oh, I get it. He's an elder, so I should respect him. And it's like, oh, oh, now you get it, Bells. Now you get it. So Billy goes into this really long story that goes for pages and pages. I'm probably not gonna get into it too much, but it's sort of like the origin of the Quilute tribe and how they were spirit warriors. There's always been magic in their blood, but it wasn't always the magic of shape-shifting. They were the spirit warriors. And the first spirit chief was Kahiliha, who used the magic to defend their land. And so he and the other warriors left their bodies and they created this like fierce wind that would scare their enemy tribe. And the animals could see their spirits and would do their bidding. And so the other nearby tribes, they sort of made treaties with the Quileutes Oh, treaties. Everybody loves a treaty. And then they lived in peace. And whenever an enemy would come, the spirit warriors would drive them off. And then over generations, the last great spirit chief was someone called Taha Aki. But then there was an internal conflict with one of his spirit warriors called Utlapa, who thought that they should be using their magic to expand their territory. But when the warriors were their spirit selves, They could read each other's thoughts. So Taha'aki knew what Utlapa was planning and they outcast him. So what happened was Taha'aki left his body. And while he did that, Utlapa also left his own body and then overcame Taha'aki's body and killed his own body. So now he was inhabiting Taha'aki's body. So Taha'aki was stuck in the spirit land. Meanwhile, Utlapa's running around as Taha'aki just causing discontent. And he's even taking on a second and a third wife, even while his first wife was still alive. So he's starting a system of sister wives and Taha Aki's watching on in the spirit realm being like, dude, what the fuck? Eventually, after some other attempts to get back into his body, he inhabits the body of a wolf and they have a sort of shared consciousness. And he went into the tribe to go and attack Utlapa. Utlapa sent the other warriors and the other warriors were like, making eye contact with the wolf, being like, oh, something's different here. And one of the older warriors, he went into the spirit realm and figured out that Taha'aki was in the wolf and that Utlapa was inhabiting Taha'aki's body. But before this warrior could do anything, Taha'aki's body inhabited by Utlapa killed him. So then Taha'aki's spirit was in the wolf and was super angry and he was so angry that the wolf transformed into a human. And he was like even bigger and stronger than Taha'aki's original body because he was the flesh interpretation of his spirit. And the warriors around them recognized at once that this was Taha'aki's spirit. And so Utlapa tries to run, but Taha'aki defeats Utlapa. So then there's a period of peace and Taha'aki is known as the great wolf Tahaaki fathered many sons, and then they too discovered that they could transform into wolves once they'd reached manhood. They discovered that when they became these wolf warriors, they didn't age, but when they got sick of being a wolf warrior, they reverted back to their human selves and started aging again. And so Tahaaki, he's now lived heaps, heaps, heaps long. And so he'd married a third wife after the death of his first two, Oh God, lots of wife swapping in this story. I will say that. But apparently he loved his last wife more than the others. (laughs) And so when she died, he decided to give it up and gave up his spirit wolf. And so that's the first story. That's the story of the spirit warriors. And then there's also another story that Quill then, oh sorry, old Quill then says, which is the story of the third wife's sacrifice. And this happens after Taha Aki gave up his spirit wolf there started to be trouble in the North with one of the neighboring tribes, cause several of their young women had disappeared and they thought it was the wolves' fault. So he sent some of his warrior sons out to go investigate and they started smelling this weird smell in the forest that burned their nostrils. Half of the sons went North and never came back after they investigated. And so Taha Aki, he went to the other tribe and spoke to their chief and was like, dude, it's not us. There's this weird smell. My sons are missing don't know what's going on. And that chief's like, yep, I trust you. Sorry about that. And then a year later, some more people go missing from that tribe. And they're like, okay, dude, I know it's not you, but we've got to figure out what's going on. So they go on the hunt again. Only one son comes back and he brings with him a strange cold stony corpse that he carried in pieces. And every descendant of Taha Aki could smell that corpse and was like, oh my God, that's disgusting. So the sons had found this vampire. They don't say vampire, but I'm just gonna say that to speed things along. They find this vampire, he's hovering around some dead bodies, drinking their blood and they attack him. And then yeah, most of them die except for this one son. They had found that only their teeth could damage it. And so they ripped him into small pieces while they all fought him. But the vampire meanwhile killed almost a lot of them whilst getting ripped into chunks. But eventually the creature was destroyed. He brought the creature back. So they laid the body parts out and then a severed hand started trying to reattach itself to its arm. And that's when the rest of the tribe were like, hold up, wait a minute, this is too creepy. So they burned all the body parts and then scattered the ashes far and wide. And Taha Aki, he wore a bag around his neck that it contained some of the ashes so that if the creature ever tried to put himself together again, he would know. And that's when Billy, he pulls out the bag around his neck and was like, Yep, this is it. And Bella says, a few people gasped. I might've been one of them. Like, How do you not know if you're one of them that gasped? I might've been, I might've been one of them. You were one of them, you gasped, I gasped. So they're like, okay, this is a cold one. We only had one wolf protector left. And that was the young Yaha Uta. But of course, vampires, they're all horny and coupled up. So he had a mate and she comes seeking revenge. So she walks into town and everyone's like, oh my God, she's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. She's a goddess. But some of them are like, oh, she stinks. And that's when they realized, oh, shit's about to go down. So they say there were 20 witnesses to the cold woman's approach, only two survived. I don't know if you'd call them witnesses if they died, but yeah, there were 20 people, two survived. And those two only survived because she got distracted while drinking blood to kill everyone. But those two, they ran to Taha Aki and said, hey, look, This bitch, is killing everyone down at the village. So Yaha Uta, being the last wolf, he goes down to try and fight her. When he gets there, she's not there. She's in the water, swimming around like a shark and she's breaking the ships that they're on. And like the ships are sinking with people in them. She's just really, really massacring the whole town. But then she sees the wolf and she's like, here we go. And so she kills Yaha Uta and Taha Aki sees that and he limps forward, screaming, and he shifts into this ancient white-muzzled wolf. And the wolf was old, but his rage made him strong, and that's when they were fighting. But the third wife, she'd just seen her son die and her husband fighting, and she's like, you know what? I need to get a diversion. So, the third wife, they keep saying the third wife. I wish she had a name. I wish she had any identity of her own, but- No one remembers the name, so they just call on her the third wife. So the third wife, she grabs a knife and she runs to the cold woman and the cold woman's like, oh yeah, a knife, like that's gonna hurt me. But she's like, it's not for you. And she stabs herself in the heart. And then the cold woman's like, oh my God, blood. And she like goes to drink the blood. And in that moment where she's distracted, Taha Aki's able to like tear her neck apart. And so Taha Aki, because he was able to really birth a lot of kids, he had a couple of other sons who weren't wolves yet, but watching their mother die, they had so much rage, they sprang forth and they turned into wolves. And then with their father, they finished her off. But Taha Aki, he never rejoined the tribe again. He went into the forest and never returned. And then they say trouble with the cold ones was rare from that time on. The bloodline would just continue to protect the tribe with just like a few wolves at a time. So whenever a blood drinker would come up, they'd be able to overpower them. Sometimes a wolf would die, but they were never decimated like that first time again. So they learned how to fight the cold ones and pass that knowledge on. And then time passed and then the descendants would no longer become wolves when they reached manhood automatically. It would only be if a cold one was near that the wolves would return. But then a bigger coven came, the Cullens, and that's when Ephraim Black went to go fight them. But then they they had that big old chat and made the treaty that I hate so much. So while the vampires had held up their side of the treaty, their presence, and the fact that they would sometimes draw in some extra vampires, that meant that the pack would be larger than the tribe had ever seen. And that's the story. So I thought I would pretty much just read that story as is, well, summarise that story as is without critiquing it too much. But I do want to mention that this is very contentious what Stephanie Meyer has just done. So as you probably know, the Quilute tribe are a real tribe and Stephanie has sort of taken their tribal history, mixed it up with these two stories and misrepresented them and have taken their history and really not given them anything in return. So it's cultural theft in a way. I will refer to the Burke Museum, which has got a website, burkemuseum.org, and they've done a write-up on some of the misconceptions about Twilight in regards to the Quileute Tribe. So they say the Quileute Wolf Pack is integral to the Twilight story, yet the Quileute Tribe has not received any of the billions of dollars of profit garnered by Stephanie Meyer Summer Entertainment and the many retail companies selling Twilight merchandise. Those profiting have avoided any legal claims, but the misrepresentation and misappropriation of Quiliute culture causes deep ethical concerns. And they say the most salient offence of misrepresenting their culture is this fictional origin story, which we just heard. And she didn't just outright fabricate something, she took what the actual story was, changed it to fit her narrative purpose, and then sold it as if that was the real story, which is the problem. So, the true Quileute story differs where Kwati transforms the first Quileute people from wolves. So, the Berkey Museum says, such an incorrect representation of Quileute origins is tantamount to altering the creation story of the Judeo-Christian world, except... It's a further affront in this instance because the Quileute origin story is relatively unknown. So Maya has unjustly rewritten Quileute identity into that of magical werewolves because she's presenting a real tribe with a fake story based on their real story. She's really muddling the waters and everyone's profiting except for the actual tribe. There's a lot in there to do with the tattoo that's in all the movies and which is on all the merchandise and this is all without any approval given or royalties earned by the actual tribe. There's some other interesting stuff on that website if you're interested. They talk a bit about imprinting and their problems with that. They talk a bit about the racial and class discrepancies between the two groups in Twilight between the classy Cullens and the Quileute wolf pack. They say how Stephanie shows the boys as being meatheads characterized by rage whereas the Cullens with their beautiful mansions, fine clothes, luxury cars, they're like the opposite. They talk about how in the movies Jacob shows up at Forks High, never seeming to attend school of his own. The movie Eclipse reduces the responsibility of Billy Black's tribal council leadership to the telling of ghost stories around a campfire. And then the Twilight Saga labels the Quileute Society with infidelity, broken family structures... It says, while many of these traits being poor, uneducated, and having ubiquitous and dysfunctional relationships are common among all groups of people, the Twilight Saga reinforces these shortcomings as synonymous with the Ute and in essence all Native Americans. So there's a lot of problematic stuff happening here. I knew I wasn't the best person to unpack this scene from Eclipse, so that's why I went to the Burke Museum and pretty much just read that out, so I encourage you to go to BurkeMuseum.com if you want to read more. But for now we have a few pages left of the chapter, so let's get into that again.
1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds.
0: Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to
1: bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
0: So everyone's around the fire and they're starting to laugh and talk and have conversations as usual. And Bella says that her mind was a thousand years away. She couldn't stop thinking about the stories that she just heard. And she's picked up on the casual sexism of the oral history. She's like, I'm trying to imagine the face of the unnamed woman who had saved the entire tribe, the third wife, just a human woman with no special gifts or powers. She'd saved her husband, her young sons, her tribe. I wish they'd remembered her name. The fact that Bella's calling that out is sort of a good commentary on perhaps how women in history, their stories aren't told we're not hearing about the impact of women's achievements, So it's it's quite a good commentary in there in amongst all of the problems (laughs) that we've just spoken about. Maybe that's a a silver lining, who knows? You've really got to dig deep for any redeeming quality in this chapter, but I think that's it. So she must have nodded off. Jacob wakes her up. They're at the car. He's at the meeting point for Edward to come pick them up. So She must have fallen asleep and then been carried and driven around and not woken up. Unless she's a sleepwalker, I don't know. Apparently, while she was asleep, Jacob had called Edward for her. He'd also called Charlie. He's been a good dude. And she says, thanks, Jake. No, really, thank you. Thank you for inviting me tonight. That was, wow, that was something else. I don't know why she was privileged enough to sit down and hear those stories, but she was, and Jacob says it was nice having her there. Meanwhile, Edward's pacing around being like, hurry up with the chit chat, I wanna see my GF. And so she's like, all right, better go, bye Jake. And so she walks past the boundary line, Edward gives her a hug and he's like, oh, Bella. And he's so relieved and it's like, oh God, calm down, Edward. They were literally just sitting around a fire, eating hot dogs and hearing stories. Like nothing that troublesome happened. And he says, did you have a nice time? And she says, yeah, it was amazing, Edward. I wish you could have come. What? Like, what? Why do you think that would go down well? You just heard a story about a vampire massacring their whole tribe effectively, save a couple of people, and then they had to rebuild. And you think inviting a vampire would be a good idea. Oh, I wish you could have been there to hear the story about this massacre. I don't think so. She says, Jake's dad told us all the old legends and it was like magic. And he says, well, you'll have to tell me about it after you've slept. And she says, I won't get it right. And isn't that a meta commentary on what we just discussed? (laughs) No, she would not get it right. And no, Stephanie did not get it right. So he takes her home. She goes upstairs. She gets ready for bed and waits for him to sneak through the window as per usual. And he comes in and she's like, "Oh, is Jake about there patrolling? And he says, yes. And Esme's on her way home. And she's like, "Ugh." She sighs. She says, oh, it's so cold and wet. This is silly. And Edward says, bitch, it's only cold to you. We're fine. We are we are literally supernatural beings. I'm called a cold one. I'm okay to be in the rain. Esme's okay to be in the rain just so you don't get killed. And then she falls asleep. She has a dream that Rosalie is fighting an enormous wolf who she thinks is Billy Black. And then she's running to try and stop them. I don't know what she thinks she can do to get in between a werewolf and a vampire in her dream, but she's running to try and stop them. And then she notices a big ancient silver knife in her hand. And she's like, oh, I could just kill myself. So I think Bella sat through that whole story and inserted herself into the narrative. She took all the wrong messages about it. and Now now she thinks self-sacrifice is probably the only solution to all of her problems, which I... I mean, I thought we covered that in New Moon and in Twilight, but (sighs) she'll never be convinced against sacrificing herself. Ugh! so she wakes up from the dream. Edward's in bed. He's just been sitting there reading a book in the pitch black darkness. So I guess with his super vampire eyes, he doesn't need a book lamp. And then I'm thinking, if he can read in the middle of the night without a light, why does the Collins' house have lights? what would be the purpose of them ever putting the light on in the middle of the night? I don't know if they would. Their electricity bill would be great. No bill shock at the Cullens' house. So he's reading Wuthering Heights. He says that he's starting to sympathise with Heathcliff in ways that he didn't think was possible. And she's like, yeah, that's, that's great. That's a cool story. She falls back asleep. The next morning, Edward leaves. She goes to get dressed and she says, I'm low on options. Whoever had ransacked my hamper had critically impaired my wardrobe. If it wasn't so frightening, it would be seriously annoying. I thought they took like one sweater and a sock. I'd, oh, she's got nothing to wear now because the vampires stole her outfits. Like, I really think, I really think they took a pillow, a sock and a sweater. I can't remember anything else being mentioned. Either way, it might be time for you to buy some new clothes. And then she notices the copy of Withering Heights lying open on the floor. It's lying open at the page that she thinks he might've been on and her eyes get caught looking at three particular words. And then she reads out the passage. I don't I don't really think it matters. I could read it out to you guys, but I don't really care about the literary allusion in this book. I think it's the biggest stretch since the Romeo and Juliet one last book. But the phrase that piqued her interest was drank his blood. She's like, oh my God, drank his blood. She's like, maybe that's why Edward's empathizing with Heathcliff because Heathcliff said something about drinking blood or whatever. And then she's like, nah, the book could have probably fallen open to any old page. And that's the end of the chapter. Not sure why we needed that last two pages just covering the withering heights of it all, but okay. All right, well, that chapter seemed like a big old info dump. We've gotten some more backstory on the fake Quileute tribe that Stephanie's writing about. And next chapter is time. So I'll see you guys next time. In the meantime, you can check out patreon.com slash breaking down bad books for access to the bonus episodes. We're working our way through Insurgent. It's been a hoot. And if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. All my handles are in the outro and in the show notes. And as always, if you'd like to leave a rating or a review, please do so. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to BreakingDownPod at gmail.com or on Twitter at PodBreakingDown and Instagram at BreakingDownBadBooks.